Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Contingency planning... The White House considering fresh tax cuts to support the economy. But as far as payroll tax cuts are concerned, not an option. Conti's crisis, the Italian prime minister set to resign or face a confidence vote in Congress. And China's covert campaign. Facebook and Twitter have said they've deleted accounts targeting Hong Kong's protesters. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move and welcome to another stimulating and stimulus-filled hour of news and analysis. Let me talk you through what we're seeing right now for U.S. markets. At pre-market right now, we're seeing a modestly higher start following three straight sessions of gains for the Dow and for the S&P 500. We've all but reclaimed last Wednesday's 3% sell-off, which came amid the recession warnings, of course, from the bond market. I think we can perhaps thank trade-related headlines for that. In Monday's session, the majors added some 1% plus, helped along by a rise, a stabilization, let's call it, in bond yields. The 30-year bond yield, though, took the biggest daily jump since October in yesterday's session. What about in Europe, too? Well, Germany's stocks have been volatile, but we're giving back some of yesterday's stimulus hopes-driven gains. I think our skepticism there was well-placed. Germany apparently going to wait for an economic crisis to hit before taking any new fiscal measures. Hmm. Over in China, some stealth stimulus may have kicked in overnight too. China replacing its benchmark interest rate with a more market-driven rate system that Beijing hopes will increase corporate borrowing too. They're not alone, of course, as I've already mentioned in considering fresh support. The White House pushing back, though, on reports that it's considering a payroll tax cut to support consumers. There's also reports that they may roll back some tariffs on Chinese imports. Yes, these are the tariffs that the White House insists China is paying. Mystifying. Consumer spending, though, is the key to the U.S. economic outlook. And, of course, that's also going to be key to the 2020 election. So let's talk this through and get to the drivers. Matt Egan joins us now. Matt, welcome to Stimulus Central here. Let's talk about what the White House could potentially do and what they're saying they're not going to do here. And then we'll discuss the benefits. Julia, if the Trump administration isn't worried about a recession. They sure have a funny way 
of showing it. Because over the weekend, Trump officials went out on television. They did a full court press to express optimism in the economy. And then yesterday, President Trump went on Twitter and he urged the Federal Reserve to lower interest rates by a full percentage point and relaunch quantitative easing. Um, really steps that are very extreme and only reserved for an economic emergency, not an economic boom. And now they have floated this idea of more tax cuts to boost the economy. The Washington Post reported late yesterday that White House officials are discussing whether or not to push for a payroll tax cut uh, to avert an economic slowdown. Now, the White House is pushing back on this idea. Um, a senior uh, White House official told uh, CNN that more tax cuts for the American people are certainly on the table, but cutting payroll taxes is not something under consideration at this time. Now, just to remind everyone, uh, payroll taxes are paid by Americans making uh, less than $133,000 a year. And this goes to fund social um, safety net programs such as uh, Medicare and Social Security. Um, now, it seems like at this point, the odds of a payroll tax cut um, are low. Uh, that's because it would require a divided Congress to support it. Um, Cohen's Chris Kruger uh, said over uh, said last night that he thinks that there are low odds for this to happen. But he expects President Trump to throw the policy kitchen sink at recession risk. And Julia, I think just the the fact that we're even talking about this shows that, you know, behind the scenes, the White House is worried about whether or not the longest economic expansion in American history will last through the 2020 election. Absolutely. It's always worth having those contingency plans in place. Some might argue, though, that the best stimulus that the U.S. economy could have is the removal of tariffs that, that U.S. companies pay in order to import Chinese goods here in the United States. But hey, that's a, a novel idea here. It's quite fascinating, though, in light of the tweet yesterday from the president saying that he wanted the Federal Reserve to cut rates by a, a full percentage point here. I'm just thinking when Jay Powell speaks later, if they're anticipating fiscal stimulus, tax cuts coming in the near too distant future, doesn't that make them less likely to cut rates here? Of Trump's fighting himself Abs here, perhaps. Right. Absolutely. I mean, why would the Fed need to lower rates if um, the White House and Congress are going to cut taxes and if uh, the Trump administration backs off the tariff? threats. Um, but one thing that continues to be an issue is uncertainty, right? I mean, the trade war is on again and off again, uh, seemingly on a day by day basis, which makes it so difficult for businesses to invest in the future. And that can hurt and already has hurt business spending. It's also creating volatility in the stock market, which um, has already caused consumer sentiment to take a hit earlier this month. Um, so I think that all of these are going to be um, risks that the Federal Reserve has to weigh when uh, Jerome Powell speaks on Friday at Jackson Hole. Yeah, much anticipation as we await that speech. Matt Egan, thank you so much for that. All right, so let's move on to our next driver. And over in Italy now, Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte will address Parliament after the far-right League party pulled out of the coalition government. Two weeks of a political turmoil ensued. Barbie Nadeau has been following this for us. All sorts of speculation about what the Prime Minister might say here. What should we expect? Talk us through it. It is going to be really interesting. Giuseppe Conte has two options. He can either resign right now in the coming moments when he addresses Parliament, 
or he cannot resign. And if he doesn't resign, that will cause a confidence vote. Now, that confidence vote, if it happens, is really going to be telling for Matteo Salvini. He has so much popularity outside on the streets. We've seen opinion polls that have doubled his popularity since the last elections. But his battle is inside the arena, and that is the Italian parliament, where his party doesn't have as much power. So we're seeing a whole lot of power plays uh, going on, a lot of little parties that could be deal breakers and, and, and kingmakers really going forward. But it's really all in the hands of Giuseppe Conti. And right now we're seeing him take the stage. He's going to make that crucial speech to parliament. And really at this point, Julia, anything goes. We really don't know what's going to happen except that it's going to be the end of the Italian government as we know it right now. Julia. Yeah, let's, let's just play out some of the scenarios here. Let's say that, that Conti does resign here. He then sort of passes the baton over to, to President Mattarella, who then has to have conversations to try and understand if a, a fresh coalition can be can be made here. What's the risk that uh, Matteo Salvini is outmaneuvered here when we see a tie-up between the centre-left, the, the PD party here, with the five-star movement that he was originally, obviously, in this coalition with? That's right. Well, you know, Mattarella, this isn't the first time he's tried to put these pieces of the puzzle together. This is exactly the same makeup he had when elections were held when there was no clear majority 14 months ago or, or 16 months ago. 14 months ago, this is what the best case scenario was. These two opposite polar opposite parties, the, the league the, the, which really rose from the ashes of the separatist Northern League Party and the five-star anti-establishment party. Now, those are the pieces of the puzzle that are together right now. And Mattarella really does doesn't have a lot more to work with. He could try to bring in the left, but the last 14 months have been spent by all of these parties saying how they would never work with the left and the left being in opposition. So it's hard to see who's going to have to swallow their pride if there were to be some sort of new coalition government uh, that could be put in place. The more likely scenario, though, is really eventually to call these snap elections, which is what Salvini wants. He took a calculated risk, and this is a man that's got a lot, a lot of popularity and a lot of power on the streets, and a lot of people behind him based on his hardline anti-immigration policies and, and things like that. And so if he can get to the vote, that's going to work for him. It's just whether or not someone's going to try to stop him and put someone else in place before he gets to the polls. Yeah, worse, worse timing for the economy as well. Barbie, fantastic to have you with us. And we will watch that speech avidly, of course, and bring that news to you the moment we get it. All right, let's move on to our next driver now. Hong Kong Chief Executive Carrie Lam reaching out to protesters, saying she will establish a quote, platform for dialogue here and has been calling for mutual understanding and respect. The question, of course, for protesters is, is that enough at this stage? At the same time, China has defended content removed by Twitter and Facebook. They removed content supposedly sponsored by the Chinese state media in their view, saying it was sowing discord. Donny O'Sullivan, Donny O'Sullivan joins us now. Donny, talk to me about this because we're 11 weeks in now to these protests. What exactly are Facebook and Twitter saying that they found and therefore deleted? Yeah, Julia, Facebook and Twitter both saying yesterday that they found sort of the covert activity on social media that we saw uh, Russia running in the United States in the lead up to the 2016 election. Uh, both Facebook and Twitter allege that China uh, was running these covert accounts that were designed to look like independent news outlets, independent individuals, but were actually trying to undermine the protests. They were comparing them to cockroaches and even to Islamic State uh, terrorists. Okay, so 
Let me just understand this. We're in a situation where we're 11 weeks in with these protests. Are we getting better at spotting nation states trying to sow discourse here? I'm comparing back to the 2016 elections here. Are social media companies getting better at spotting these things and therefore banning them quickly? Because it feels very pivotal as we head into 2020 in particular. Absolutely. I mean, they certainly have gotten a lot better since 2016. Uh, but I mean, in 2016, they also had basically they were doing zero of, of this in looking um, at actions on their platforms in this way. Um, it is a pretty incredible uh, situation when you think of it. These public companies, Twitter and Facebook, you know, really jumping into the geopolitical arena and attributing quite significant cyber actions on the part of nation states um, to countries like China, like Russia, like Iran. It's something that, you know, previously only governments or some of the top cybersecurity companies would do. But now Twitter and Facebook have both found themselves in this uh, position. Notably absent from the announcement yesterday was Google. We have not heard anything from Google about whether their platform uh, like YouTube uh, was used in any way. Of course, Facebook and Twitter and Google all banned in China at the moment, uh, but some would say that Google is probably the only company with a realistic uh, or possible route to market there. Yeah, and you make a great point as well, I think, that they're coordinating, they're working together, Facebook warning Twitter and, and vice versa, and of course, working with the security forces as well to try and understand what's going on. So you know, to circle back to your point, it does feel like we're not on top of this, but we are tackling it far better than we have in the past. That's right. And I mean, I think, you know, particularly here in the United States, there is enormous pressure on these companies who prevent a repeat of what happened in 2016, where they were caught totally blindsided, where there was accounts with millions of followers organizing protests uh, on the streets of the US, but actually the organizing happening from St. Petersburg in Russia. Facebook and Twitter do not want that to happen. In Facebook's case, they've even actually hired uh, people from the intelligence community. They've hired former uh, Pentagon officials to help them dig in and find this uh, type of actions that are happening. In this week's case, it was Twitter who discovered what was going on and Twitter then shared those details with Facebook and Facebook were able to use um, that information. For instance, they might have shared IP addresses or, or different information like that to identify a network of accounts on their platform as well. Yeah, and we should make the point again that China obviously defending itself from these accusations here, but at a government level, conversations clearly need to be had. Donny, fantastic to have you with us today. Donny O'Sullivan there on that story. All right, let's move on and talk about Apple now. Apple joining the streaming wars, the new TV Plus service set to be released in November. The Financial Times is reporting that Apple's set to spend some $6 billion on content, luring stars the likes of Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Anderson. Haddis Gold joins us on this story. When I saw that $6 billion, I was like, now we're talking when we're comparing to the likes of Disney and Netflix, although they dwarf them. But there's been a lot of cold water poured on this, even this amount of money. Talk us through it. Julia, that's right. We have now seen some competing reports this morning that it might not actually be that $6 billion number. But even before that $6 billion number was reported, Apple was reportedly spending at least a billion per year on original content for their new streaming service that's expected to come out soon. But you're right. I mean, if you compare it to something like a Netflix or Disney, Netflix apparently spends something like $15 billion on its original series per year. That just goes to show you the rising trend we're seeing in the amount of money being spent on a lot of these new streaming services, on a lot of these original 
original content. Just to compare, for example, a broadcast show on, say, a CBS or ABC might be around something like $4 million per episode. That morning show, that new show on Apple that you were referencing with Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon, there are reports that it's about $15 million per episode. That's about the same, if not more, than Game of Thrones costs with all of its special effects. This is a show about TV, what we're doing here right now. I do want to put up and sort of just to help people understand the comparison between some of the new streaming services coming out because just this week we're getting a lot of news not only about Apple's but also Disney. So there on the screen you can see Disney's. We have some more concrete information. It's debuting on November 12th, $6.99 per month. It will launch internationally over the next two years. But think about the content library they have. They've got Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, and they're planning bundles with Hulu and ESPN+. Plus. With Apple, they said it's going to be in the fall. We see reports it's going to be in November, possibly around nine. Per month will be available probably in more countries more immediately than Disney. But when you think about the number of shows they're not they're going to have, they're not necessarily going to have on their own streaming service the amount of library that something like Disney or Netflix has. Now these original series, you have to keep in mind, they're all about drawing people to Apple. Apple, I don't think necessarily is trying to become the next Netflix because they they want to sell, they want to get their phones into your hands, they want to get their other services like Apple Music into your hands. So that's part of their goal to double their service revenues by 50, uh, to $50 billion by 2021. So you have to think about the Apple streaming services as part of sort of a larger whole package versus a Netflix or a Disney where that is a lot of their business right there, Julia. Yeah, you're comparing apples and oranges if you're comparing these two. The <laughs> ecosystem for Apple's already been built here, but hey, more expensive than Game of Thrones I'm going to put in for a pay rise. These morning shows are clearly very lucrative. <laughs> That's gold. Thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring up to speed now with some of the other stories that, that we're following around the world. Donald Tusk has fired back at the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson over his Brexit deal suggestions. The European Council President telling Prime Minister Johnson that the EU will not drop the Irish backstop unless there's an alternative. The fire response comes after the British leader sent a letter to Mr Tusk damning the backstop arrangement, calling it anti-democratic. Both the EU and Britain are trying to move beyond this impasse as the October 31st Brexit deadline approaches. Fresh CNN polling numbers are out. Former Vice President Joe Biden regained a double-digit lead over his nearest rivals from the Democratic presidential nomination, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Kamala Harris dropped down in the polls. Harris has now lost the gain she won following the first televised debate back in June when she attacked Biden over his record on race-related issues. We're going to take a quick break here on First Move, but coming right up, the going gets tough. Home Depot sending a warning on sales as the trade war hits the consumer and a helping hand. The CEO of Handshake tells us how he's getting students from campus to career, the right career. Stay with CNN. to first move live from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange this morning. Pretty flat for the U.S. futures at this moment, consolidating after the 1% gains plus that we saw yesterday. We're awaiting clarity both on the outlook for rates here and, of course, government stimulus around the world. We've got the minutes of the Federal Reserve's last meeting released tomorrow and, of course, Fed Chair Jay Powell speaking on Friday. Alan Ruskin, the Chief International Strategist at Deutsche Bank, joins us now. Alan, good morning. Good morning. What on earth can 
Jay Powell say about the current environment? Potential stimulus coming from uh, the US government right now, a request from the president for a 100%, 100 basis point cut. I mean, there's a lot of noise. Yes, the pressure's on uh, Jay Powell at this point in time. I think he can say that the door's wide open to further easing. I don't think he's going to want to signal anything much more than a 25 basis point cut is almost certain for the September meeting. But I think beyond that, I think he's going to still suggest that we could get easing uh, in, say, October or December as well. So he's not going to push back too much on what the market right now is is pricing or asking for, because they're arguably saying they want to see more. Yes, the market's now pricing a 20% probability of 50 basis points yeah. for September. That looks like a real stretch. Market's pricing in 75 basis points by January next year. So that's also a lot, really, in a way. So he's going to have a hard time really keeping up with the market. But the market's been more right than the Fed of late. You know, it's interesting. PIMCO were saying overnight that they're going to pair some of their bond holdings at this stage because the key risk for them, as they see it, is we do see some kind of trade deal, even if it's just a nominal trade deal signed here, and they see then a sell-off in bonds and rates lift higher. I mean, that's the complication here, too, is that if the U.S. president decides, actually, we just need a trade deal here to prevent weakening in the U.S. economy, all bets are off again. Yes, there's a lot of uncertainties. A lot of uncertainties in terms of U.S.-China trade negotiations, China's currency policy, right. what's going on in Hong Kong, Brexit. There's a whole lot of things coming up, particularly for the end of October, which is, uh, I think, going to be a, quite a meaningful moment for Crunch the market. Time. Crunch time. So you wrote a great article this week talking about gold, and you said, look, it's kind of caught in the crossfire or caught between two themes, which is a race to the bottom in cutting rates, but also a, a race here as well to weaken currencies and support individual economies. Talk me through this. Yes, I mean, these are two of the big themes that are out there, really. These are multi themes. Yes. You can get little hiccups where markets move in the other direction, but the market's really focusing on the idea that the Fed hasn't got all that much room to cut and eventually they're going to get to zero in this cycle, that rates are negative in uh, much of the developed world already, that the U.S. is moving in that direction, and therefore there's a general rate uh, push in terms of rates towards zero in the developed world. That's very good for gold. Gold is a zero-yielding asset, but it's actually looking like a high-yielding asset in this world. So a very strange place indeed. And government's looking to, to own it as well. I mean, the benefit of, of gold and the price of gold going higher, when you made this point, is that it doesn't hurt anybody. Correct, that's right. And we're seeing particularly some signs that, for example, China is looking to shift some of its reserve assets into gold. Gold's a small market, so it can't really take no. three trillion assets and put it into gold. Yeah. But it can put some of it, and it can move the market quite substantially. What does this all mean for for the US dollar as well at this stage because in a battle of the relative uglies and I'd argue that the United States economy isn't even an ugly at this stage, we are seeing this flood into, into US bonds into, into US assets as well and that's supporting the US dollar Yes, so we're seeing the US dollar strong versus some currencies so strong versus the emerging market currencies, right. strong versus commodity currencies, not so strong versus things that are associated with risk-off environments, so the yen and the Swissy really, right. but in a general sense tending to edge higher so uh, it's still holding its own and that's where I was gonna go so if you had to choose between the likes of gold as a safe asset or yen or, or the Swiss here the Swiss franc which one wins in this environment I think gold wins in the really? end because 
what you're seeing is the currency side, it matters from a real economy standpoint. Japan cares if its currency is appreciating. Right. Switzerland cares, <laughs> in fact, has been intervening to stop its currency appreciating. No one really cares if gold goes up. In fact, many they central like banks it. quite like it. <laughs> yeah, that was yes. the point. No one actually hurts it. Yeah. How closely should we be watching the signal, the flash that we got from the bond market in the United States? Because we've spent hours talking about the possible recessionary risks in the United States. How, how important is that for you? It is important. Uh, the yield curve flattening has been a very good signal. It's typically a longer signal, so it typically says something about where the economy is going to be in 18 months. But I think people are missing one point, which is the bond market is enacting a huge amount of stimulus for the economy as well, and the housing market is going to hold its own. I think the consumer will pretty much hang in there. So the immediate recession risks, I think, are fairly limited. And don't, don't not interpret the, the benefit of seeing what we're seeing in the bond market right now, too. It's a great point. Alan Ruskin, fantastic to have you with us. Chief International Strategist at Deutsche Bank there. All right, we are counting down to the market open this Tuesday morning. A modestly flat start. Plenty more to come today. Stay with us. You're with First Mood. Tuesday's session, a modest start for stocks following a three straight sessions of gains here for the U.S. majors. Investors obviously got a lot to uh, mull over today. Reports from Washington that we may get some further stimulus coming from the White House here. Possible even seeing some reversal of the tariffs that have hit. Chipmakers are also going to be in focus today. They were among the best performing sectors on Monday after the U.S. allowed companies to continue to do restricted, but at least some business with China's Huawei too. All right, let me walk you through the global movers today. Beyond meat in focus, JP Morgan upgrading it to overweight from neutral, saying that the sell-off that we've seen in the stock has gone on long enough and it sees potential for the plant-based food maker to add fresh customers. Beyond meat up some 7% in the session so far this morning. We're also keeping an eye on both Home Depot and Coles. Both retailers are moving higher after posting an earnings beat. Let's get more on that from Claire Sebastian who joins us now. Claire, great to have you with us. Talk to me about Home Depot to start off with because a forecast downgrade here, some sensitivities around what the consumer behavior will look like going forward in light of the tariffs on the, uh, the uh, U.S. consumer or the U.S. tax on consumers here. Yeah, absolutely, Julia. This was, you know, a mixed set of results overall. Not too bad, but a lot of focus, as you say, on that guidance going forward. They are trimming it for the year, they say, primarily because of lumber price deflation, but also factoring in some of the potential costs of the trader. It was interesting, the phrasing from the CEO here. He said potential impacts to the U.S. consumer arising from recently announced tariffs. He's not saying this is about tariffs impacting directly in terms of cost. They are saying that in terms of that, they're going to go on an item by item basis. That's not necessarily going to translate directly to the consumer, but they're worried about the broader impact, how this is going to impact consumer confidence, how this could hurt uh, spending power overall if 
say, other retailers start to, to pass on prices. And I think it's interesting to compare this, say, with Walmart last week, which actually raised their guidance, citing the health of the U.S. consumer. Home Depot, perhaps a little different because these are bigger ticket items. This is more discretionary. And I think, therefore, it's more vulnerable to the broader macro impact and the potential drop in confidence that we're seeing. Yeah, it's such a great point. I think they're just being conservative here. The line I pulled out, the current health of the U.S. consumer and a stable housing environment continue to support our business. So you've got to be very calibrated in the way that you read this. You make such a great point here. Talk to me about Coles, back to school business helping as as well that tie up with Amazon here as well fueling the business. Yeah, Coles has been pretty proactive, Julia, in terms of uh, you know taking on this, if you can't beat them, join them policy in terms of, uh, of Amazon and all that. They have this initiative with Amazon where you can drop off your returns in store. Clearly that's helping drive traffic. Uh, people who are dropping off their returns stay in store and, and pick up some items while they're there. They've also partnered with Facebook. It was recently announced uh, to help them bring in kind of new trendy brands. Still though, struggling a little bit. Comparable sales were down 2.9%. But they did say they saw uh, demand accelerate in the, the last six weeks of the quarter. Perhaps that was because Coles also held some of their own sales around Amazon Prime Day at the beginning of July. A big back to school time. So that contributed uh, to, to some, some, some positivity. They had a rough quarter last time. This was a little bit better. Yeah, it's quite fascinating, isn't it? If we're trying to build a picture of what's going on with the U.S. consumer, we keep reiterating how important this is to the U.S. economy. Consumer or service related to the consumer, two-thirds of the economy here. If I'm just looking at the, the sort of noises, the signs that we're getting from these, including Walmart last week, pretty solid, Claire. Would you agree? Yeah, I think overall the picture that we're getting is, is the consumer is still healthy. Walmart is definitely the best bellwether for that. It's the biggest retailer by far, 5,000 stores in the U.S. I think the other thing to bear in mind, though, is this is a still a very difficult time uh, for, for the traditional, the department stores, the mall-exposed retailers. I think we can show you some of the year-to-date performances uh, for those, many of them still really struggling as, as the, the big competitors, the likes of Amazon and Walmart, keep getting bigger. Just look at Macy's down 46%, even Nordstrom, which has been seen as, a, as another kind of proactive uh, you know, adapter to this climate down 44%. They're still really struggling to win over Wall Street with their, their transformation efforts. Yeah, it's a calibrated story, though, to your point about specific retailers versus the U.S. consumer in general. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. It was great to have your wisdom. All right, up next, the Fed under pressure as President Trump demands more, much more from the central bank. We'll get the insider's take from the former president of the Minneapolis Fed. That's up next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. A mid-cycle adjustment to policy. That's how Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell described last month's rate cut. For those seeking more detail on what exactly that means, this week perhaps could offer some clues. Let's get some context. So joining me now is Nariana Kochilakote. He's a former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis and now professor of economics at the University of Rochester. So fantastic to have you here on the show. Plenty for Jay Powell to digest and for the Federal Reserve this week. The president included tweeting that he'd like to see the Federal Reserve perhaps add more QE again, also cut rates by 100 basis points, so one percentage point. If this weren't the president asking for this, does he have a point? Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. I, I think that uh, on the, just on the basis of the economics alone, I think there is an argument for more easing. Uh, you know, I'm not sure of the president's exact number of 100 basis points, but 
uh, you know, I, given how low inflation is, given how low inflation expectations are relative to the Fed's uh, desired rate of, of 2% per year, and given the, uh, the recession risks that I think we see in uh, price being priced in by markets, there is an argument to, to, for, for more easing. And I, I, I believe the Fed will uh, likely ease more uh, by cutting rates more over the course of 2019. But you raised, I think, uh, hinted at the big issue here, which is this is not just uh, a professor of economics talking. It's the president of the United States who's saying this. And that I think that introduces a lot of risks to, to Fed credibility, uh, Fed independence, when the president is being as vocal as he has been about his desire desires for monetary policy. Do you think those risks accelerate? To your point, we don't really have a problem with inflation right now. So the Federal Reserve arguably has room to lower rates. If we have an inflation problem or higher inflation in the future, then presidential pressure like this becomes an accelerated problem. Would you agree with that? I agree. That's really well put. I, I, you know, right now, I don't think that the, Fed, the president's commentary is posing uh, much of an economic issue. The problem is that he's broken uh, tradition, as he has in many areas. And that break with tradition could lead future presidents, including himself, to be critical of Fed when inflationary pressures do develop. And then, then that's when uh, we would face a risk uh, to actually the, the, the Fed's ability to achieve its desired outcomes. We'd have uh, overly high inflationary pressures and people doubting the Fed's ability to, to uh, tamp down those pressures. You know, you've long said that the Federal Reserve has been too restrictive here. Could we also argue, actually, that the best stimulus here for the economy perhaps isn't rate cuts, it isn't tax cuts, it isn't seeing some kind of cuts from the Federal Reserve. It's actually the removal of, of the tariffs that have been placed on imports coming in from China and the impact that has on the real economy here. You know, I... I I don't know if the tariffs themselves are having that much of an effect on the U.S. economy as much of the uncertainty that that um, the president's uh, tariff policy and trade policy is engendering uh, among businesses. You know, that uncertainty means they're not sure should we invest or not, and that then the, that that's what's slowing down. I think uh, I think the U.S. economy, uh, but this is happening in a, many spheres of, of of life, not just. Uh, with respect to tariffs, I think the president is a, a big source of uncertainty for the economy. And that's a big drag that the Fed is is going to have a hard time fighting against. You know, it's not just having a drag on, on the U.S. economy, the uncertainty. It's also having a weakening effect around the world. China, Germany, big exporters, Singapore, we can name a whole host of them. Is actually the, the slowing of the global economy perhaps a bigger problem for, for the Federal Reserve to tackle here than, than what's going on in the domestic economy? Because they can't ignore it. Right. No, the, the Fed is certainly watching global uh, events with great interest. And uh, you're absolutely right. I think countries that uh, where trade matters more or that are um, uh, like Germany are, are being more influenced by the, the president's uh, uh, policy and policy uncertainty than than the United States. Uh, but I think in general, you know, certainly a global recession would pose downside risks for the United States. But I I think that the Fed uh, is well positioned to be able to, to manage those risks by, by, by being able to cut interest rates.
What do you make of the move that we saw in the bond market last week and the focus of the potential recessionary signal it sends in the coming 12, 18 months to two years based on past history? Should we be focusing on that very closely here? And would the Fed? Well, I, I think the, the signals in the bond market that are very interesting to me are really uh, not just in the short run, but over the longer run. You look out 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and you see uh, very low real interest rates, which, which would correspond to low growth expectations among bond investors. Where is that coming from? Well, I think part of that is that I think the bond markets are pricing in the inability of central banks to have responses to big big shocks of the kind that we had in 2007 and 2009. Not garden variety recessions, but big recessions would be very difficult now for central banks to be able to, around the world, to offset. And I think that's what you're seeing priced into bond markets, that those fears are leading to demand for safe assets, downward pressure on, on yields and upward pressure on prices. There's a, a growing an assumption here that where Europe and where Japan has led, the United States will have to follow. Do you agree that the U.S. could end up cutting rates back to, to near zero, if not zero here? And perhaps we even see a resumption of, of QE, of, of bond buying too. How high is that risk? Well, that's a, that's a tough question. I, I think that the Fed's goal is to cut rates now in the, the hope that that will forestall the kinds of risk you're talking about. Um, but yeah, if we had a recessionary shock, which I, I, to be clear, I, I view is, is pretty unlikely. If we had a recessionary shock of the magnitude of 2007 to 2009, uh, the Fed just lacks the policy tools, policy capacity uh, to be able to forestall that. And it actually central banks around the world, um, such, such as the European Central Bank, uh, really even have less policy capacity than the Fed. So um, I think what the Fed is hoping is by, by cutting now um, in the, over the course of the, the, the remainder of this year as well, uh, a small number of cuts now will actually forestall and help shear off that, uh, that recessionary risk. So insurance here is essential. Insurance cuts, insurance stimulus is essential. That's what the Fed is hoping is by taking out insurance now, we won't have uh, those risks materialize, you know, and that's, that's what, there's good, I think, good thinking behind that, that when you're as close to the uh, policy, the, the zero lower bound as uh, the Fed is to, 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 the, to the limits of your policy capacity, you want to make the, sure the economy is as healthy as you possibly can. And that, that I think argues in, in favor of what the Fed is doing and doing even more of it cutting interest rates. Yeah, it's a, it's a big worry as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Nariana Kochalakova, thank you, sir, so much for joining us on First Move this morning. We'll get you back, please, soon. All right, we're going to take a quick break here, but uh, up next, how do you make your mark in the job market before you have any professional experience? Well, Handshake says it's got the answer. We'll be talking to their CEO. Stay with us. We're back in two. Welcome back to the show and we're in the chat room with a professional networking company for people who haven't got any professional experience as yet. 
like LinkedIn Handshake brings job seekers together with employers. The difference is that it focuses on the students. It says it works with over 400,000 employers, including every Fortune 500 company. Joining us now is the CEO, Garrett Lord. Great to have you with Thanks us. Thanks so much. Fascinating company. So in your own words, talk to me about what Handshake does here and what difference it makes. Totally. Handshake's the number one career site that students are finding internships and jobs in the country on. When we bring together a trusted network of over 800 universities, 14 million students, and 400,000 companies all connecting and helping students find their first internship or first job. It's like a dating site for companies and for students, but the key here is, unlike LinkedIn, where you seem to need professional experience, this says it's okay, this is early start, and we'll put you with the right company and basically match based on skills. Is that the key? Yeah, we like to say that we're a no-network required site. So right. students don't have a lot of experience, and when they build a profile on Handshake, they can list out their extracurricular activities, any work experience they have, their interests, and we then connect those student profiles with over 400,000 companies. There's actually 100% of the Fortune 500 actively using the platform to connect with students, uh, and they can also learn from one another. So we have features to help students learn what's trending in their major, what's happening in their college, and really helping in a more personalized way help students launch their career. It's also important for companies too, because companies tackle the, the best universities, the Ivy League, as they're known in the United States. It's tough even for them to get round to some of the other universities. Yeah. So they might miss great students and great graduates simply because they're not looking in the right places. Oh, the, the process was so broken before. Yeah. I mean, historically, it was very challenging to manage your college recruitment at scale. And so you had to limit the number of universities you were connecting with. Today, employers can go on it with a couple of clicks. They can connect with over 800 universities. We have 120 minority-serving institutions using Handshake. And there's actually a really cool story of a student named Danny who went to Delaware State, a historically black college and university, where he built his first profile on Handshake. And we connected him to three Fortune 500 companies that he historically would have never connected yeah. with on that campus. There's a statistic, though, that you use, which is quite mind-blowing here. And it's that almost 43% of people who graduate are underemployed in the job that they're doing. They're simply not doing a job that, that's matching their skills. They're too qualified and it's persistent. It, it stays with them for years and years and years. Absolutely. I mean, so much about finding your first job or career is reliant on the socioeconomic status of your family and what yeah. school you go to. And we're really trying to, you know, uh, reduce the, the information asymmetry problem that most students have and understanding where they fit in this world of work and connecting with companies and other students and young alumni who are on different career paths to help them have information and access to companies across the country. How do you make money? Uh, we make money through two ways. Universities pay for our product to help match their students and employers on campus. And we have amazing partnerships with them. And then we also make money from employers who are under, who are really focused on trying to find top talent at all schools around the country, brand themselves more effectively, and really measure the efforts of their college recruitment. Are you profitable yet? Uh, one of the benefits of being a privately held company <laughs> is we keep that. that quite private. But we grew revenue by 5x last year. We're on track to grow revenue by 3x this year. Uh, needless to say, our investors are and, and teammates are really excited about where we sit. Talk to me about potential expansion into other countries as well, because the United States is huge, but Europe also has exactly the same problem. I know this. Are you talking about European expansion? Uh, we're laser focused in the United States today, but we just did open an office in the, in the UK. Uh -huh. And uh, we see a very similar problem as you described with employers trying to connect with top talent, but uh, the, the, the difficulty in, in doing so at scale is really challenging. Do you think we're overestimating the skills gap 
Let's bring it back to the United States here because often employers talk about the skills gap, they can't find the right workers. Do you think we're overestimating it? What does your data suggest if you just match the right people and take out that information asymmetry? Yeah. So we can fix the problem. I think we're going to make a big impact on the 43% of students that are graduating working a job that didn't require a college degree. And then as it relates to how employers think about it, employers kind of fall in two buckets. One of which they think about uh, upskilling the students, like they're just looking for adaptable college grads and they view their role as upskilling the students and other employers that want the students that have the skills they want. So we see both uh, both types of companies on the network. Yeah, it's huge for student debts as well. If 43% are racking up debts and they're not doing a job that actually is matched to the skills that they just earned over three or four years. It was great to chat to you. We're going to get you back. I can see big things. Garrett Lord, thank you so much for that. Thank you so much. All right. Let me bring you up to speed now with today's boardroom brief. Baidu's share price surging after second quarter earnings weren't as bad as expected. Investors were bracing for the worst and the search engine admitted profits slumped by 62%, but revenue unexpectedly rose. Tighter regulation from Beijing and slower economic growth combined to squeeze their income. Let's move on because Germany's buyer is selling its veterinarian drug unit to American rival Elanco for $7.6 billion. The deal will make Elanco the second largest animal health business. It's part of buyer's larger plan to spin off assets as it looks to slash debt levels. President Trump is going after Google again, this time tweeting that it manipulated votes in favor of Hillary Clinton back in the 2016 election. He claims that if it weren't for that, his margin of victory would have been even bigger. There's no evidence to back up that claim. The president's theory is based on a disputed claim made by a psychologist during congressional testimony last month. He argued that Google's search results were biased to Clinton during the campaign, but he did not allege vote manipulation. Google has denied both accusations. And finally, ever imagined what it would actually be like if President Trump bought Greenland? Remember, this was a story we were discussing earlier this week. Well, imagine no more. Donald Trump tweeted a picture of Trump Tower towering over Greenland, but promising he'd never do it. The Danish Prime Minister stresses Greenland is not for sale, calling President Trump's interest, quote, absurd. Serious issue bonkers tweet. That's all I can say. Now, Italian Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte is addressing the Senate. He has attacked the resigning Deputy Prime Minister Matteo Salvini over his call for a no-confidence vote. Prime Minister Conte accused Salvini of putting his own personal and party interest ahead of the country's. We'll continue to watch that. Remember, we were discussing earlier on the show all sorts of speculation about what his next move will be. We can give you a quick look at the uh, FTSE MIB over in Italy down some 1% right now. That just about wraps up the show. We'll be back in a couple of hours with The Express. But for now, you've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Have a great Tuesday. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 